Good morning, everybody. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time. Thank you to those of you who are leading them so faithfully. We began uh, last week in our second series in the book of Proverbs, really exploring now some of the nuts and bolts uh, after we've given an overview of what wisdom is, now looking intently at a variety of topics that the book gives us. Today we'll be uh, continuing on in that vein. So if you brought a Bible, please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9. You may remember we looked at this text a few weeks ago, and today we're going to look at it uh, again, but through a slightly different lens and emphasize uh, something different in the passage than we talked about last time. So Proverbs 9, you may remember if you were with us, gives the picture of two women inviting you to dinner. And we happen to have those two women here today. <laughs> Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways, and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The image is powerful. It's as we walk down the street of life, there are two houses, and from those two houses are calling two women, inviting us to dinner. And they look similar, but the result of which house you go to will be very different. We said a few weeks ago as we looked at this text that wisdom and folly are personified as lady wisdom and woman folly. And who you consistently go home with will determine whether or not you end up living your life as a fool or as a person of wisdom. And you'll notice that there's just like only two people that were standing on the stage reading, there's only two options. There isn't a third house. There is no third path. There is no alternate destination. We either become people of wisdom or we become fools. 
Lady wisdom or woman folly? You make the choice every day. Every single day we decide who we're going to have dinner with. Every day is full of invitations to cultivate godly wisdom, and every day there's the temptation to take the easy, foolish way out. So we talked extensively a few weeks ago about what those look like, but what we didn't spend much time on is how do you know? How do you know which house you're winding up in? It might not be as obvious as it seems. What's the distinguishing difference between woman and folly, and lady wisdom. Today, that's what we're going to talk about, is how do we explore and how do we decide and how do we live according to one and not the other? How do we know which person we're sitting with at the dinner table? So are you with me? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sandwiched between lady wisdom and woman folly are five verses in the middle of the proverb that don't seem like they fit when you first read through it. And this is the part we didn't spend time on last time we looked at this text. So let's look at it again, verse 7. And remember the context, there's one woman crying out from her house, and there's another woman crying out from her house, and between the two is this section that doesn't seem like it belongs. So verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. Who's the me? Verse 12, for you are wise, you are wise to yourself, and if you scoff, you alone will bear it. What's up with these five verses? All of a sudden, in the middle of these two gals talking, inviting us over, in shows up a scoffer who's hurting those who are trying to seek help. And there's a wise person that's being helped by the counsel of others. If someone was writing this today, I think what we would probably say is clearly he or she got through the first five verses, then got a nasty text message, got angry in verse 6, and verse 7, wandered off into this pontification, and then calmed back down by verse 13 and returned their former thought. Not that that ever happens to any of us, of course, but that's the way it seems. That's what it feels like. But here's the point. The distinguishing mark between the wise and the foolish is what you do with corrective criticism. The difference between the two is not do they always make great decisions? Is their behavior always righteous? Do they always choose the right house? That's not the point at all, actually. The distinguishing difference between the two. How do you know which house you've wound up in? It's when someone who loves you and who speaks wisely comes and corrects you. How do you respond? That's how you know which house you're going to end up in. It's how you receive correction. 
So to put it even more directly, how do you know if you're dining right now in everyday life with folly or wisdom? The test is really simple. It's when was the last time somebody corrected you and what did you do with that advice? That's what those verses in the middle are telling us. The difference between the two women is when you receive correction, what do you do? If you listened, if you considered what was said to you, if you prayed about it, if you processed through it, perhaps with even somebody else, a third person, and assuming it was wise, you corrected your behavior, then you're feasting with lady wisdom. But if when someone came and counseled you, offered advice, you simply pushed it away without even considering its appropriateness and said, I won't listen to that, whether you did that externally or internally, but you simply pushed it away, then you're dining with wisdom, then you're dining with folly. That's the function of verses 7 through 12. The difference between a wise person and a foolish person is what that person does when they are given godly counsel. So today, what we want to do is take this proverb and think together about what does it mean to be a person who's living life, receiving godly counsel, so that we can become people who are consistently dining with the wise. So if you would, turn over a few chapters to Proverbs chapter 12, and I'll show you our key verse for today. Proverbs 12, verse 15, makes this very, very clear. Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The Proverbs very often do this. They take two pictures, state them side by side in very clear, contrasting terms, and it's incredibly easy just to breeze right by them. Most of the Proverbs proper, so Proverbs chapter 10 all the way through Proverbs chapter 31, are just simply that, one-off sayings that line up next to each other and offer a contrasting picture. Look at this again. There is the way of a fool. How would we say that in our language? We would say, She's a know-it-all, or he thinks he's above correction, or her conceit has blinded her to what's clearly the right thing right in front of her, or he doesn't really know himself. He doesn't realize he's only wise in his own eyes, not in real life. How can he not see it? Everybody else sees it. She doesn't listen. She refuses to listen. She is her own final authority. He's living in a fool's paradise, digging his own grave, every day believing he's preparing for a good future. She can't learn from her mistakes because she doesn't think she makes any. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. That's what the author is saying. Now, the contrasting picture is the wise. The wise recognizes his need for counsel. She actively seeks the input of others. He knows his growth is not independent from more mature, godly, especially older people. She listens well, not always running her mouth with her own thoughts, but listening. He thrives after failure because there's a lesson learned 
There's grace experienced. There's gospel renewal. She's open to correction, humble, resistant only to pride. A wise man and a wise woman listen to advice. We are one, two, what, five weeks in now to the book of Proverbs. And honestly, I think we can condense the book into a couple of sentences. One of those sentences would be that. A wise man and a wise woman listen to advice. They are not people who are so advanced spiritually that they don't need it. You don't ever reach that point. Instead, they're people who, no matter their age, no matter how many times they've done something, no matter how confident they are in a particular issue, are people who are open to the godly counsel of others. That's the distinguishing difference between wisdom and folly. Now, that seems awful simple, doesn't it? Honestly, doesn't it seem rather simplistic? That in the end, you know whether you're dining with wisdom or dining with folly by what you do when you receive counsel. That seems incredibly simplistic. Almost like I feel silly standing up here and saying it. But living by it is actually quite complicated because all of our own junk gets in the way. So when somebody offers you a piece of advice, you don't hear it as though you're a clean slate, ears ready, always open to the counsel of others. Often, we have a whole bunch of filters we sort through. So let's stop and think about why is the distinguishing mark between wisdom and folly what we do with counsel? Why is that the difference? Or to put it another way, why do our lives turn out so different if we work hard and look out for ourselves and only take our own counsel versus why do our lives look very different if we're living closely in community with fellow church members who both allow us to give and receive wise counsel? Why is that so different from each other when it seems so simple? Well, Proverbs doesn't answer that question, really. But let me give you a few suggestions. I could enter these as exhibit A and B, and you just do with them what you'd like. One reason, I think, is that because no one is immune to self-deception. The reason why we need counsel so much is that no one is immune to self-deception. I went to school a long time to figure this out. But the nature of deception is you don't realize you're deceived. And all of us are people who are deceived about particular things about us. There are issues, struggles, weaknesses, strengths, experiences, blind spots that we simply don't see. There was a way in which we were raised that seems normal. Part of it's normal and part of it's really busted up. And we don't often see it. And so we need the input, the counsel, the advice, the suggestions, the encouragement of others because we don't realize where we're deceived. And so that is a reason why this is such an important issue. A second reason, exhibit B if you will, is it's impossible for one person to see every side of a question. 
there is simply no possible way that if I'm looking to make a decision that in and of myself, even with all the insight and knowledge of Scripture and experiences I've had, that I can think of every possible issue that might come up with that question. Are you with me? So part of the provision, the protection, the wisdom of God is to say, pull somebody else in. Because they have a different set of experiences, a different personality. They are more familiar with other parts of Scripture. They were reared in a different kind of environment, and they can help me see it in a different light. Friends, listening to godly counsel is a theme all over the book of Proverbs. Now, not near as often as the heart that we talked about last week, but there's many passages that talk about this. Let me show you just two. Proverbs 15, verse 22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And then Proverbs 24, for all you dudes, if you need a kind of manly verse today. Verse 5, a wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance, you can wage a war, and in the abundance of counselors, there's victory. So, the, the piece of wisdom God gives us today is what you do with wise counsel determines whether you're becoming a wise person or a foolish person. So, that's all I got. You ready? Don't go home? No. Wow. Oh, it just melted my heart. So sweet. Again, the concept is incredibly simple. But let's think together about how we get there. Let's spend the remaining 20 minutes I have with you thinking about practically how to become a person that will give counsel and that will receive counsel. If you want to become wise, then you must become humble and teachable. An outgrowth of this proverb that we've looked at is that if we want to become wise, we must become humble and teachable. The humility to hear and to respond to correction is imperative to growth. But so often we think of humility as weakness. We think of people who will sit and receive instruction from others as people who are pitiful. But friends, it's not pathetic to need others to give counsel. It's not weak to look at something and say, I don't know what to do. It's not weak to, in a particular issue, struggle with indecisiveness. Instead, it's humble and it's Christ-like. Listen to how a few authors put this. What it means to be a fool is to refuse to listen to correction, to be fanatically insistent on living on the basis of one's own wisdom instead of trusting in the Lord. Turning aside to folly is truly a kind of insanity because it is inherently 
destructive. Friends, humility understands God is God. Chuck is not. Therefore, I need the input and wisdom and counsel of others. Humility knows the heart still needs transformation. Humble people are aware that if the right things all came together at just the right moment, there is absolutely no sin I am ever above committing. Therefore, I always need the counsel of others. Humility is utterly convinced, left to myself, I will destroy myself. That's why God brings his people together in local churches to help each other grow. Another author put it like this, no man earns more universal detestation or deserves it more than when he wears a perpetual sneer. He is the person who knowingly winks and the clever phrase who has been seen through the hollowness of everything. Have you ever met that kind of person? You're trying to talk to them. You're wanting to offer gently a piece of advice, and yet they just sneer, and you're very confident that they're fully convinced you are a complete idiot. That kind of person, the book of Proverbs actually tells us, is beyond hope. They're done listening. There's nothing you can do. Now, that doesn't mean don't try, but it means until that changes, it doesn't matter what you say. And so, probably the best thing to do is to, yes, offer counsel, yes, offer correction, but when you leave, get on your knees and plead with God to open their heart, to chisel away the hardness, to soften it, because they've become a fool. In the book of Proverbs, not listening to wise counsel is, pictures, is pictured as stubbornness, as blindness, as scoffing, as foolishness, as being overtaken with darkness. It's, an, it's analogous to airing your own opinions, even though you know you're usually wrong. It's being deluded. It's finding yourself easily ensnared in quarrels and arguments. And it actually uses the word, it's useless to try and help somebody like this. So what's the daily dose of multivitamin you need to be taking in order to not end up like that? It's humility and it's teachability. Now this is massively countercultural in Tempe, Arizona, isn't it? Our deepest cultural idol is autonomy. Individualism is the god of Tempe, Arizona. It is everywhere. You are in charge. You do what you want. No one has the right to say anything different. Whatever you want to be truth for you is truth for you. Therefore, there is nothing I could probably say from the book of Proverbs that seems more strange. If we're honest, the vast majority of us in this room cannot think of the last time someone gave us counsel and we listened. And probably half of us can't think of the last time someone gave us counsel. Why? Because we look so much like our broader culture in this regard. 
There are other places in the world that have different idols, and they're no better. They're just different. There are places where familial ties beyond the immediate nuclear family are the cultural idols. Some of you are from a culture like that, where mom and grandma and great-grandma and what they want matters more than anything else regardless of whether or not it's true and helpful. And the whole of the family is more important than the individual. There are cultures like that. Some of you are from those cultures. That isn't Tempe, Arizona. Tempe, Arizona says, don't listen to advice. Don't open yourself to correction because there is no truth. What you want to be truth is your own truth. So friends, this is difficult for many of us. Let's all just recognize how odd this sermon must be to our ears. But God says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now let me try to make this super practical for us. How do we cultivate among our church a culture of godly counsel? What are things we can do to take that proverb and to implement it uh, in everyday life? I want to spend our remaining couple of minutes together thinking about that. Number one, we can take our church membership seriously. What do I mean? Friends, the primary context for counsel is the committed relationships of the local church. God's design is is that the members of the church would be a community of wisdom. God's design is that the church would be a community of wisdom. That a diverse people from diverse backgrounds, different ethnicities, various amounts of money, all different kinds of jobs, some of us recent new Christians, others of us believers for decades, could come together and together help each other become a wise people. For most of the history of the church, so the book of Acts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts is the the birth of the church, and the rest of the story is about the growth and spread of that church. So from the majority of that time to today, churches have used something called membership covenants as ways to express commitments together. And those membership covenants, those commitments, have been ways in which, practical ways, in which churches have said, we want to be a people of wisdom. We want to commit to be a people of wisdom. When I came to be one of your pastors six and a half years ago, after investigation, trying to figure out what our church's founding documents are, uh, he has passed away now, but... One man in the church had a copy of them still, and he literally, this is not an exaggeration, brought them to me and went, (sighs) he blew the dust off them. They had become completely unused in our church. And inside of these documents was a church covenant. Those of you who have been here a long time might be familiar with the fact that we had one. But the majority of us at that point didn't. It had fallen out of use. 
And so one of the early things that we did was update the language of that covenant and begin using it in our membership class. So if you've joined the church in the last three or four years, although we didn't use the word covenant because it weirds us out, I hope we'll get to the point of using that language. If, but if you've joined in the last three or four years, you've seen this. And uh, perhaps this week, Brian, we could put it out in our, in our blog, and that way everyone could see it and could consider it. But I want to read a couple of statements from it. These won't be on the screens because I, I want you to just hear it. Okay, can you ju- just a couple of sentences I want to read to you. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor to bear each other's burdens and sorrows, always remembering to pray for one another. That's a needed commitment, isn't it? And if you took your Bible and wrung it, out would drip that idea. It's very central, very often talked about. Here's another. We will walk together in love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. If occasion requires, we will humbly plead with one another to cease in sinful behavior and encourage the confession of sin to one another. Again, if we squeeze the Bible, that comes out. And so a a membership covenant isn't some weird add-on to the Bible. It's simply a document designed to pull together the things the Bible says about the church and give us a way through, through which to commit to one another. If you're a member and you haven't taken the membership class, I want to encourage you to do so. Our new bylaws get us a lot closer to making biblical commitment to each other. I don't think we're all the way there yet. We still need a statement of faith that grounds our core beliefs in the Bible, and we need to formally adopt a covenant so that all of us together could say, this is our shared vision of church life. We're not quite there, but we're getting there. How can we take next steps? Well, we can listen to a sermon like this and take it to heart. We live in a culture that says emphatically, I am not my brother's keeper. And we worship a God who says, Christians, you are each other's keepers. You are responsible to love, to care for, to pray for, to confront, to pursue, to weep, to rejoice with those who have promised before God to live the Christian life together. Through grace-based effort, we can do that. So let's be a church that takes our membership seriously. Will we make mistakes in that? Yes. Will somebody say something really stupid to you? Yes. Will you say something really stupid to someone? Yes. Will people be imperfect in their pursuit of these ideals? Yes. Will you get hurt? Yes. Will you be disappointed? Yes. Will there be something terrible that happens in your life that someone might not know about? Yes. 
are any of these excuses that are valid reasons to not pursue godly church membership? No. I think what often happens is because we've been hurt, either here or in other settings, we build walls up that we think will protect us. But all they do is keep you in a little tiny fortress, impeding your love and grace and care from God through other people. So let's take this seriously. There's nothing more important than our shared life together on mission for the glory of God. Now what else can we do? Another way we can pursue this is that we can intentionally nurture relationships with wise people. They don't just happen. They've got to be cultivated. It's like a garden. A garden takes some fertilizer, takes water, you got to pull out the weeds. You got to keep out the foxes. You got to nurture it. Friends, wise people bring comfort. They build up. Their words at times might sting, but they're life-giving. Wise people live not for themselves, but for God and the good of others. And so they're fun to be around. Relationships are a mess worth making. Don't excuse yourself from God's prescription for wisdom because you've pursued somebody before and they said no. Instead, try again. There are many, many, many wise people in this room who would love someone to take the initiative to build a relationship with them. So think of real practical things like get here at the unforeseen time of 9.15 and spend 15, 16, 17 minutes getting to know people. Get a coffee in the back. Stand around and talk to folks. When we end at noon, don't just run off. Find somebody around you and say, hey, some of that I liked, but this has really got in an uncomfortable place. I'm not sure I agree. What do you think? Find a GC if you don't have one. Jump on our website this afternoon. Email somebody that lives close to you. There's literally a map on the website with a little pinpoint to where the groups are. Find the one nearest you geographically Take a really bold step. I know it's scary, but email the person and say, tell me more about your group. Look for ways to seek people you don't know. Ask somebody here to go out to lunch with you. Ask folks who are further along in their Christianity to speak into your life. Give them permission. Be open, transparent. Don't pretend you got it all together. We have intentionally designed Church on Mill to have an incredibly basic, simple structure, not overrun with programs, so that there's time for this. We are intentionally doing very few things that are formal, 
you come and sit and listen to one person talk. That is a key part of what the Bible tells us to do. But this activity that's happening right now is designed to put gas into the tank of church life so that the, the church can drive all over town and function in its God-given way. I am not the church. I'm not a pope and I'm not a priest. I'm a sheep who happens to be a shepherd too. And so my task is to open the scriptures before you, say, here's what it says. Now test it and make sure that's what it actually says. And now pursue each other in godly, wise, nurturing brother and sister relationships. There's lots of stuff we don't do here in a programized, formal way. Why? Because if you're actually doing this, it's going to take up a good chunk of your life. So the things we do are designed to equip you, church member, in order that you could live out this vision of life. We want to be a place where relationships are happening across life stages and experiences and social status and education level and ethnicities and ages, where these relationships are knitted together by Christ, not similarities, in order that the gospel would be what's magnified. Ask for brothers and sisters to care for you and nurture relationships with them throughout the week. Two more suggestions and then I'll end. Third, ask for input into decision-making. That habit would make the most sense within our gospel communities. These are groups who come together to say, this won't be the only context in which I seek counsel and build friendship, but it will be a primary place. And in that environment, ask people to give you counsel when you've got a decision to make. We are all prone to swinging to relational extremes. Now, here's what I mean. In their really helpful book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane describe a continuum of relationships. On the one hand, there are people who say, I want to be safe. And so your relational MO is isolation. You might show up here, but if you do, you come late. And you sit far away, and as soon as possible, you leave. And you live your life largely in isolation from other Christians. Now others are way over here on the other end. They say, I need you in order to live. These are people who always have to have other people around them. They are constantly immersed in people. They are exhausting. And helpfully, these two authors say, most of us don't think here introvert and extrovert. Think people that are broken and are seeking to be filled up in two very different ways. And Timothy and Tripp say, it's not that we, uh, I'm sorry, Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp say, it's not that you're only here all the time or only here all the time. 
It's that depending on what's going on in life, you tend to swing from one to the other. So you wall yourself off and you hide, and then eventually something breaks and you sit at people's feet like a puppy dog lapping at their legs, just hoping for a little morsel to fall to the ground. And then when somebody hurts you again, you swing back over here. Do you get the image? I can sure see how that works. Neither of those extremes are right. And often those extremes will convey or portray themselves the most when we have a really huge decision to make. Do I buy that house? Do I marry this person? Do I say yes to this grad school? Do I keep the pregnancy? What do I do? What do I do? How do you resist those tendencies? Get in a group, and in that group, say, friends, I'm not sure what to do. What do you guys think? What's the absolute worst that can happen? Somebody say something that's offensive? Somebody give you a bad piece of advice that you don't use? That's probably better than what you'd do on your own. Is it not? Try it. And perhaps try it with something little first. And see what happens. Ask for input in decision making. And lastly, listen when you're confronted in sin. I think I'm a little bit of a freak when it comes to this issue. Those of you in the body that I respect the most are the people who will come and say, Chuck, I think that wasn't right. It troubled me when you said this or when you did that or when you didn't do this or how you chose to handle that. I'm not sure that was the right thing to do. When someone's willing to engage me in that way, I explode inside with joy because I know I'm loved when somebody does that. Now, that can get weird and hypercritical and legalistic and pharisaical and be like chipping away just because somebody wants to have power. But that is so far removed from Tempe culture that I simply, honestly, don't think I've ever seen it a single time in this particular church. Be open about your life. Everyone knows you're a sinner. You don't have to hide it. Be open and allow people to correct you. You'll be glad. You'll grow. It'll be a good thing. Wise people listen to counsel. Who's the wisest person of all? Jesus. Matthew chapter 12 says that Jesus is greater than Solomon. Many of the Proverbs are attributed to Solomon. He wrote them. The wisdom of Proverbs is important. The counsel we give each other is critical, but it's imperfect. Even when we try our very best, 
to counsel each other, to encourage each other, to help each other, we're still going to mess it up. There will still be times that we say things that are not quite right. So let's help each other. Let's look to each other for godly wisdom. But let's always remember to gaze at Christ. Let's look to each other, but let's gaze at Christ. Because only Christ is wisdom perfectly. Only Christ will always tell us what to do. And 100% true, 100% godly, 100% correct, correctly. Jesus is wisdom from God the Father. Jesus must be first if we are ever to truly be helpful to each other. C.S. Lewis put it like this, and I'll close with this. When I have learnt, doesn't sound like you learned much. When I have learnt to love God better than my earthly dearest. Now, he's just saying the person or the thing that I treasure the most. That's what he's talking about. When I have learnt to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I've learned to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall love my earthly dearest at all. When things, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Godly counsel to one another is important but it's not first. God's first. And the more God is first among us, the more we're treasuring Christ supremely, walking in the gospel confidently, the better we're going to do at offering godly care to each other. Let's pray. God, this has been an immensely simple, practical message. And yet, would require what feels like such a drastic change for many of us. Both in, in being people that will go to someone and say, hey, I've been praying about this issue in your life. Could I offer a suggestion? Or if we haven't seen someone in a while, just popping in, knocking on their door and saying, hey, checking on you. Or when we have a decision to make, saying to a gospel community, I'm not sure what to do. Or when we sin, men going to another man and women, women going to another woman, saying, I, I really blew it in this regard I've repented before God, but I need to confess to you. Would you pray with me? Father, help us through your grace and your strength to see Christ first as the source of life, the fountain of all wisdom. And then as we do, to be increasingly helpful to one another. May we become a community 
of wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.